0: Let me say good morning to you all. And now that you're seated comfortably, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a farmer who really wanted a harvest. And so he really went big on, on scattering seed. He wasn't stingy. He didn't hold back. He scattered it everywhere and anywhere, so much so that some of it landed on a path. Um, and it just got trampled and eaten by birds and nothing grew and some of it landed on rocky ground uh, where there was, there was just no moisture and so just it, anything did try and grow it, it withered, nothing grew and some landed uh, on in thorny ground so much so that anything did try and grow there it just got choked by the thorns and nothing grew but some landed on good soil Oh boy, boy that stuff grew like wildfire so much so it gave the farmer a 10,000% profit because living things grow now most of you are aware I'm sure, that's not my story <laughs> that's the story Jesus told his disciples didn't, didn't he And I think that Jesus told that story to his disciples to prepare them for the book of Acts. He's saying, listen up, listen up, guys. Like a farmer desperate for a harvest, preach the gospel like that guy sows seed. Don't be selective. Don't be stingy about where you throw it out. Just go everywhere and anywhere. Or as he says again to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 at the beginning of this book, take it to Jerusalem, and to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But know this, the devil will steal some of it away, and you'll get nothing like the seed on the path. And opposition from the world around you will scare some people away like the seed that fell on the rocky ground. And the temptations of this big city and a wandering eye will entice some people away and you'll get nothing like the seed that fell amongst the thorns. But living things grow. And so when the seed hits the good soil, well, prepare to have your hands full. And the church bursting out of your little upper room and so this church starts in chapter one with 120 people huddled together in that room. And then by chapter three, we've got over, chapter two, we've got over 3,000 people gathering together. And by chapter four, we've got over 5,000 people. And then we get to chapter six here and we read, verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. I wonder if you've ever heard anyone say something like this around church or churches. Numerical growth doesn't really matter. We we, we shouldn't be fussed about numbers in the church. But Jesus clearly predicted numerical growth. And. The Book of Acts is incredibly interested in numbers. Uh, around, there's around 30 statements in this book relating to numerical growth. They're like punctuation marks all the way through the book, uh, uh, noting the health of the church at that point. So in Acts 9:31, it, it increased in numbers. In 1224, the word of God grew and multiplied. In 1605, the church increased in number daily. In 1920, the word of the Lord continued to increase. So, actually, numbers do matter because Jesus' church was born to grow. Numbers matter because they're people being saved. Numbers matter because the word of God is living and active and living things grow. And so this word promises us that there's a harvest out there that the devil can't steal. Opposition can't scare away and no amount of money can entice. So why don't I just sit down? And we can pray for church growth. <laughs> Let's do that. Well, hold on. We should do that. We must do that. <laughs> but what we need to spot here is Acts 6 highlights for us that actually growth rarely happens without growing pains. And we need to be able to know how to handle those growing pains in order to, under God, continue to pursue growth of the church. I mean, think of it uh, like a, a child growing a new tooth. I mean, I think for most of us, we, you know, this is probably a very distant memory, but when teeth start coming through for, for, for little kids or, or slightly older kids, when a, a new tooth comes through and it shoves a couple of teeth out of the way in order to try and pop up, it, that can be painful, can't it? The growth hurts. Even though it's helpful and important, it happens so that we end up with a lovely, you know, full kind of set of gnashers in order to impress the world and chew our food with and whatever else you use teeth for. Uh, but I think as a church here at St. Joseph's, we found over the last few years, as the as church has grown, praise God for that, but at points that's been a little bit uncomfortable for us, hasn't it? As we've had to try and make changes and create space for growth. Sometimes it's even been painful for some of us. Well, please see in Acts 6, verse 1, that church growth brought similar stresses and strains for the early church. It says there, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I don't know about you, but, but bear in mind I kind of what Ben was saying about, about context. Uh, the leaders of this church have just been through a terrible, terrible time. Uh, they've been jailed twice, flogged, threatened with death. Uh, and then in the previous chapter, they'd had to handle a church discipline issue that ended up with two people being struck down dead. <laughs> if this is me, I might have been tempted to turn around at this problem and kind of go, come on. guys do you not see what's going on i mean please stop whining but what is happening is summed up in the word neglected there were people in this church who were being neglected that's an ugly word isn't it (laughs) because neglected involves a, a failure to care I don't know if you've ever been there in a, in, in a conversation with someone and, and, and clearly they're, really don't, they're not fussed about what you're saying because they're, they're busy looking over your shoulder, looking for someone, someone more interesting or something more interesting to do or to, to talk to. Well, that's what's happening in this church. There are people in this church who are being overlooked. At this point in the life of the church, they're were, there were pretty much all Jews, but from two very different cultural backgrounds. There were those who lived locally in Jerusalem who spoke mainly Aramaic. And then there were those from around the Roman Empire who mainly spoke Greek. The Hellenists, as they're described in this passage. And while people in the church have been brilliant at meeting the needs of everyone by selling possessions and, and, um, uh, and property, uh, when the church was smaller... As things grew and the church got bigger, the Greek-speaking widows were now being neglected in the daily distribution of food. It might have been through carelessness. It might have been through things just being a little bit organizationally chaotic in the growth. But there's at least a whiff of favoritism or unconscious bias here, isn't there? That these, some of these widows were being neglected because of where they came from, or have this book. And it's threatening to turn the church apart and destroy the momentum of gospel growth. So the apostles, the 12, step in. They have to. And I think there's three things that we can learn from this passage to help us as we grow as a church. Here's number one. People must not be overlooked. As the church, our mission is, is just like the early churches to take the gospel to the, to the whole world. But one of the key ways that we witness to Christ in that is the way that we care for and we love one another, those within the church family, especially the vulnerable and those on the margins. So verse 2, we read that, The 12 summoned the full number of disciples together. They take this issue seriously. They don't let it lie. And they make a whole church issue for everyone to deal with, not just them. So let me ask us all the question Are there people in the church who we are overlooking? We tend to be drawn to the people who feel most comfortable with, don't we? It tends to be drawn to the people that like us, they, they speak the same language, they may maybe our age, from the same kind of social background, maybe even from our, our city. If there, if there were 10 people at this church who were from Glasgow, then they'd be, they'd be my kind of people. And I feel really drawn to them. But I'd need to we need to resist that, don't we? Instead, we, we need to get on the front foot and think, who am I walking past? either consciously or unconsciously, who who in my small group have I not really made much of an effort to get to know properly yet? Who can I invite over to join my family for a meal or or my friends for a a cinema trip or, or, or family or friends for a picnic who might really appreciate that? To make sure that we're not accidentally or deliberately overlooking people. And let me say, if there there is anyone here this morning who is feeling overlooked, I want to say sorry. I want to say, please speak to someone about that. I know that's not necessarily easy, but please speak to your small group leader. Speak to me or Ben or one of the staff. I've been praying that wouldn't put all the onus on you and that wouldn't make it awkward for you. We wouldn't make that awkward for you. We won't always get this right, but let me assure you of this one thing. Jesus never overlooked anyone. Just a couple of minutes. Let's have a quick look. Examples from the gospel. Here we go. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth, and he said to him, Come follow me. Again, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, woman, you were set free from your infirmity. You are set free from your infirmity. When he saw them, he said, go, show yourself to the priests. And they were cleansed. He also saw a poor woman, widow, who put in two very small copper coins. He saw, he saw, he saw. One of the beautiful things about Jesus is he sees people. He's not looking over your shoulder for someone more interesting to talk to, to disciple. Someone more useful, more gifted, more skilled. No, he sees you. He sees you. He loves you. He forgives you. He died for you. And he will use you in his church. Here's the second lesson. Prayerful word ministry must always be the priority of the church. Uh, Look again at verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to save tables. In some some ways, that's not actually a great promising promising start in terms of addressing this issue. Oh, right. So you've told us what you're not going to do. You're not going to give up preaching. But actually, the reason for that is because what the church most needs is the Word of God. So it's not that the church leaders saw serving needy widows as unimportant or beneath them like like royalty, you know, turning up their nose at being asked to kind of scrub the box. No, it's more like a surgeon in hospital who who says, "I, I can't leave the operating theater in order to go and prepare the meals in the Hospital kitchen, my patients will die. That's how serious it is. Remember, living things grow. And it's the Word of God that gives life and grows life. Without the Word of God, there is no growth. Without the Word of God, there is no church. So when you observe a farmer, you can tell how committed he or she is to their harvest by how diligently they, grow, they sow their seed. And when you observe a church leader, you can tell how much they're committed to their congregation by, and their community by how diligently they scatter the seed of God's word. And please see the, the apostles, the 12, modeling this at the end of chapter 5, the end of the last chapter. As we're told, every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so our church leaders, your expectation for church leaders is not merely for us to be stuck away in our studies preparing. Or to be standing here on stages proclaiming. We're to go to houses. Especially to the most vulnerable and to the needy. But when we get there, the primary task is to serve up the scriptures. And even more importantly than that, pray. For as in verse four, the 12 come back round to saying, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Preaching without praying is like sending a letter without putting a stamp on it, it goes nowhere preach without praying is to neglect preaching. And and, and the same goes for any form of word ministry. And for for that, we need to note here, I think, and it's taken me years, I think, to spot this, that prayerful word ministry is the priority of everybody in the church. Yes, church leaders have a particular role in preaching and teaching. We read in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1. Uh, about how they must be able to teach and to to teach sound doctrine or refute those who are false teachers. And Ephesians 4 say that they're they're, they're gifts given given by God to the church uh, to prepare the church for works of service. But here in Acts 6, as well as in the next few chapters, we're going to see the apostles' point, the, the men they appoint to this role of looking after the widows, they also... Make the most of every opportunity they get in order to teach God's word publicly and one-to-one. We see that. Stephen does it. Philip does it. Now, now don't mishear me. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that that basically what we most need from the church is for everyone to become a pastor or an elder like like Ben and I are or David is on his way towards. No, I, I think some of us could do much more for the gospel in our secular jobs but the Bible does teach that we should all do whatever we can with the gifts that God has given us in the circumstances God has placed us to make the most of every opportunity to prayerfully proclaim the gospel to others. Whether that's with our work colleagues or our family or friends or our children or to those on the fringes of the church. We really need people to do that. Or to those that we counsel and help. It's interesting as you read through Mark's gospel. Jesus, he turns down so many times the opportunities to heal people. And and set up a brilliant, raging healing ministry. In order to, even though that would be a brilliant thing. That would be a wonderful thing to do if he just healed everyone, wouldn't it? But he turns it down in order to move on. And preach and teach elsewhere, even telling his disciples in Mark chapter 1, let's go on to the next towns, that I might preach there, for that is why I came. Even miraculous healing is only temporary relief. But gospel ministry offers relief from hell for eternity. And if you think that sounds a little bit pie in the sky when you die, please note that gospel ministry is also what brings the greatest social change now. If we want to reduce the misery and injustice and poverty and addictions in our communities, the most effective strategy, in amongst all of the different ways that we could contribute to that, is gospel ministry. If the great revivals of the 18th and the 19th century teach us, nothing else it should show us that how communities were transformed by prayer and the preaching of god's word for only christ gives people the transforming power of his holy spirit in their hearts so that they can be so they can escape the snares of their past and and be promised and and move on into the hope for the future if you want to read uh, more on that and um, there's so much I could say about that. <laughs> but I'd thoroughly recommend reading uh, Mez McConnell's book, The Last, The Least, and The Lost, which is a really hard-hitting book on poverty in the UK. Mez was, um uh, well, grew, up, grew up in foster care, and um, he spent time homeless, high on drugs, and in prison during his upbringing, but he now actually leads a a network of churches who operate only in the most deprived housing estates in Scotland. At the end of giving away a massive spoiler, if you do want to read the book, he concludes that ultimately the answer to poverty is church planting and discipleship. Introducing people to Jesus is the most loving thing you could ever ever do for someone. He is our deepest need. And that ministry of the word goes hand in hand with prayer. The word of God is only effective when the power of God takes the word and makes it living. A minister, a friend of mine, used to have a quote up at his desk which reads like this. He who has truly prayed has completed the half of his study. If prayer is half the work, is that half of the work being done? Because my suspicion is that often, it's just as neglected as widows. That is what we need to remember. This is what we need to remember. Living things grow. And if the church is to grow, it will only grow through us all prioritizing prayer. And the ministry of God's word. I wonder what you might need to pull back from. Shove to the margins. Maybe, maybe even just cut completely from your life. In order to be able to prioritize and pursue that this year. Have a think. But I'm aware this still hasn't dealt with the underlying issue. Of what's going on in Jerusalem. So let me finish by highlighting that. Three. The answer to the church's growing pains is team ministry. I think this is, this is often missed here, but what we've got here in Acts 6 is an incredible, brilliant model of godly change management. At first, they listen to justified complaints, which leaders don't always do. I'm aware of that. I'm sure I've been guilty of that at points. Then in verse 2, they communicate to the whole church the spiritual need for organizational change. Then in verse 3 they look for those well-known for being full of the spirit and practical wisdom to step up or be offered up by the congregation members. And and seeing as what they said pleased the whole gathering, finally in verse 6, they personally lay hands on and, and appoint these new leaders for service whose names seem to suggest that really, really wisely the congregation of chosen folk from the Hellenistic community that was being overlooked. Essentially, together with the church family, they build a team. What would kill a hospital it would be a surgeon trying to be a chef and a cleaner and a nurse and an administrator. What would kill a church? It'd be a few people trying to do everything, wouldn't it? But what makes a church thrive is different people with different spiritual gifts and abilities performing different roles in teams doing different ministries you see the ministry of word and prayer is not the only ministry in the church in fact in verse verse 4 that that word ministry actually means service to be a minister it means to be a servant it's exactly the same word actually that was used at the end of verse 2 in regards to serving tables what's that saying? Saying that in the church, some people will minister by preparing meals and food. And some people will ministry by, by serving up the word. Both ministries are necessary for the church to function. It's just a difference of role, not a difference of status in the church. Or importance. Importance. And therefore, it, it's not appropriate to use the language of ministry. Like, like I often had it, had it kind of thrown at me when I was doing youth work back across at our partner, Church in Jesmond, when people would say, all right, so uh, when are you going into the ministry? When are you going to become a proper minister? As if becoming ordained and getting to wear one of these is when you start doing real ministry. That's what we all do, folks. You don't enter the ministry. You're already in it. The minute you turn to Jesus and you follow Jesus, he calls you to serve in his church. And therefore, we need to be a church that passionately, deeply loves to serve. So if you're part of the church and you're not yet serving, come and ask one of our team leaders, one of the staff members, what can I do? Where can I serve? Can you help me find where my place might be in this? I know Lydia is currently on the lookout at the start of term, start of a new academic year for those who could serve in our youth and children's ministries on those teams. Jonathan Fordry, who heads up our welcome um, team, which we're going to say more about in a couple of weeks' time, we're kind of rebranding, redeveloping that at the moment. But he's on the lookout for people who can help with stewarding and, and, and serving refreshments to, to welcome people to church well. Um, and Karen Besson, our administrator, is always looking out for people who can, who can serve by, by preparing meals that we put on at church. Mark Dornan, our mission team leader specifically, actually, really specifically, is asking for another male with a real passion for world mission to step up and serve on that team. And Dave, likewise, is looking for folks who can, who can help spread the load on the music uh, ministry rota uh, by, by involving those of you, preferably with musical gifts. <laughs> to get, that's, that's why I'm not volunteering, <laughs> for many reasons, uh, to, to come and uh, be involved in, in serving on those teams too. There's so many opportunities to serve. In fact, there's, a, there's all listed list of different teams that we've got that I haven't been able to mention at the moment, and we're hoping to grow that over the next year. So help us build these teams so that as a church we can pursue gospel growth because living things grow. And the church grows collectively through the active ministry of every member of the church and through all of our prayers too. So, I can finally now shut up and sit down, and we can pray for church growth. Why don't I lead us in a a prayer in that regard right now? Let's pray. And the word of God continued to increase. And a number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Oh, Father God, we thank you for you are way more committed than we are to grow your church, to save people from sin and the effects of a sin-stained world and to lead us into transformed lives now and glory in the world to come. So pray, Father, you would move our hearts To make this our priority as we step into a new academic year and to look for ways that we can serve others the word for people who we can make it our burden to pray for, as well as opportunities to play our part in the various different teams that help the church to grow and function well. We pray this not for our own glory, we pray all for yours. In Jesus' name, Amen.